What is so important about driving faster than anyone else? A lot of people go through life doing things badly. Racing, it's, it's life. Anything that happens before or after, just waiting. Everybody, people, you're welcome. The doors. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Before we get in here, I'd be remiss. Um, I'm doing some touch-up audio work on this before I drop it on, Friday, on February 13th, but uh, as I'm recording this, February 12th, it is Rayman's Eric's birthday. Just want to give a special shout-out to uh, him, his wife, Dorothy. Such an integral part of the Doors. Without him and his cosmic connection to Jim, who knows if any of this happens, you know. But today's episode, I'm talking with Kelsey Norman, the host of Speeding Bullet, the life and films of Steve McQueen. A great podcast and we actually have a part two of sorts where we talk about the Morrison Mustang and the Bullet Mustang. Um, you know, Morrison's the Blue Lady. And there's some a lot of cool things that you can glean from the finding of the two uh, Steve McQueen Mustangs that I, I find very interesting. But, you know, without further ado, we will not talk about that now. We'll go ahead and get into the interview with Kelsey Norman. Welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast dedicated to the doors and everything related to it. I'm your host, Bradley Netherton. Tonight, we have a special guest. I really wanted to do the It's Time intro like you did, but I didn't want to take I mean, because I really enjoy I've been listening to a lot of the uh, your podcast, and so that's why I brought you on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself to start out with and what your podcast is about and why we have you on. Hey, man, I appreciate the support. I, you know, I, I do this podcast, uh, Speeding Bullet, The Life and Films, Steve McQueen. And I always say you know, I just have such an interest in Steve McQueen and classic cinema. And I would make the show if even if I had one listener. So the fact that I know for a fact I got one listener... <laughs> That makes me. <laughs> so I've been doing the. I've been. Uh, my name's Kelsey Norman. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I've uh, host and producer of Speeding Bullet, the life and films of Steve McQueen, a podcast that looks at uh, one of the greatest Hollywood icons of all time, Steve McQueen. So I go through his life chronological, and uh, you know, look at his films, his television, his life moments, and I've been doing it since. Uh, November 2019, and and now in the winter of 2023, I'm up to uh, episode 81 was recently released with a a really interesting conversation about one of Steve McQueen's acting influences, Spencer Tracy, and I had a chance to talk to a gentleman who had written the definitive uh, biography about Spencer Tracy, and it was just a great conversation to learn about McQueen's, uh, you know, this this person that McQueen looked up to as an actor. Um, you know, I just, I, I was a McQueen fan. I saw The Great Escape. I think it was around 98. Yeah. And ever since then, I was intrigued by this guy. And then once I found out what eBay and Amazon was, hey, I gotta, I gotta get all his films. So I collected all his DVDs and really dove deep and i i think it was starting in around 2010 i'd go online and look to see if there was a steve mcqueen podcast i thought that's something someone would have come up with and they didn't and i got sick of waiting for it so i said you know what i have experienced podcasting and 
I obviously have a desire and, um, you know, some fandom for Steve McQueen, a desire to learn a lot about him and fandom for him. So why not start my own Steve McQueen podcast? And that's what I've, uh, that's what I've done, and that's what I've been doing since uh, November 2019. Yeah, and you can follow that Steve McQueen pod on Twitter. Really good follow. Uh, and you and I sort of had a similar journey. I, I was mm-hmm. always a huge Doors fan, and... I wanted to listen to the podcast about the doors and the closest I got was like Jim Ladd, you, you know, radio host in LA in the late sixties throughout the seventies and stuff. I remember he did a radio program about them and that was about the closest thing. I remember his radio programs about the group, but I never did get any, you know, definitive, Hey, here's a podcast dedicated to them. I would get episodes here and there. So I got to the point where in 2019 or actually surprisingly around the same time you did, I really got, I guess into it. I'm like, I'm going to make a podcast about the doors. I have gay. I had a three year plan. I had two people. I wanted to co-host it with me who were mm-hmm. respected in the community. And I was willing to give full, I guess, creative control or, or, you know, equal creative control to them. And so we, I put in talks with them, you know, they're real respected and I thought things were on the right track. And then eventually it just sort of, they're like, oh, I don't want, I don't, you know, one of them, I, I understood he didn't have time. The other one was sort of, ah, let me think about it. Let me think. I think this really great idea never got back to me. And then eventually I was like, well, I'm just going to start this on my own. And if they want to join afterwards, um, it'll just, they can be guests from time to time. And I'll just sort of take over hosting duties and it'll just be my podcast because I I feel like it's easier that way. And there's been a really good reception. I've gotten some good interviews. uh, And that's one thing that I noticed from you, man, is you, you really got some great interviews and, and if you can find, that's one thing I found. If you can find somebody to anchor like a good, uh, you've got the one uh, Steve McQueen guy you had on a lot, and I'm so sorry I forgot his name. You probably remember right off the top. You're talking about you're talking about the Steve McQueen expert, Marshall Terrell. Yeah, and, and you're you're. I want to touch on a couple things that you had you just said was. You know, if you're going to wait for someone else to start something, you might end up waiting a really long time. And you did the most difficult thing, the most challenging thing. And I think the thing that holds most people back is you actually started. You did something. A lot of people will talk about doing something, but they don't actually do it. You got to put it out there. It might not be perfect or it might not be the perfect vision of what you thought it was going to be, but you have it out there. And now you can work on it. You can refine it and you can get it to where you're really proud of it. I knew when I started the podcast back in 2019 to make this thing legit and to make it as good as I can, I need to get Marshall Terrell on board. Marshall Terrell is the Steve McQueen expert. He has unearthed more stories, more information, really valuable information about Steve McQueen uh, than any other person ever. I think uh, Marshall Terrell knows more about Steve McQueen than uh, Chad McQueen does. That's Steve's son or Neil Adams, who is Steve McQueen's first wife. Marshall knows so much because he's worked hard. He's, I think it's 25, 30 years that he's been researching Steve McQueen. So to get him on board and have him for someone who can mentor me or guide me through this, it's been awesome and such a valuable experience for me. And I showed him early on that my research chops and my drive and my desire matches his because I was digging up stuff and sharing it with him. And he'd say, oh, where did you find this? Where did you find these pictures? Where did you? So he knew right away that I was very serious about this. And I love doing research prior to 
doing this podcast, I used to create these local history videos for Calgary, where I live. And you know, they got they got a lot of a lot of run. They they became really popular because I would tell these um, stories about certain aspects of Calgary that people might not have been familiar with, and they you know they became really popular. So I, I, I and I loved the research element of looking those up, and I, I, that's one thing I love about the Steve McQueen podcast. So to have Marshall, and he's been on more than any other guest, and. You know, I've been fortunate to have really great guests, insightful guests, people who've worked with Steve McQueen, people who are friends with Steve McQueen, people who've studied, written about Steve McQueen. But I can tell you, Marshall Terrell is always the most popular guest on the show. When I release an episode with Marshall Terrell, and now he's written seven books about Steve McQueen, uh, he gets, people just love hearing from him and... I love talking to him. Yeah, we'll get into why we're talking about him on a Doors podcast later if people don't know the, the sordid history mm-hmm. there. And uh, we'll get into that. But I think a good place to start, and I know this is like fitting uh, you know, the atmosphere into a bottle. Give us a brief history <laughs> of Steve McQueen's life. Steve McQueen really is such a great example of a true rags to riches story. He He really built himself up from nothing. Steve McQueen has a quote where he says, you know, he's from the gutter. I mean, he really was. Another very insightful quote that will help uh, your listeners understand who Steve McQueen was and, and shine some light on what type of childhood and to some extent his adult life uh, is this quote. He says, my life was screwed up before I was born. The reason why he said that is because he was born into this world to a mother who really wasn't ready uh, to settle down. She wasn't ready to be a mother. Uh, He didn't know his father. His father split after six months. Uh, And so he he had a very turbulent youth. But, But just off the top, I mean, Steve McQueen was an American actor. He's one of the biggest movie icons of all time. And he rose to prominence in the mid 19 you know, early to mid 1960s and maintained a, a high level of fame and respect as a Hollywood star until his untimely death in, in 1980. So he was born in Beech Grove, Indiana, March 1930. He moved around a bit mostly because his because of his mother and she was always like passing him off to to relatives, but he he mostly grew up in uh on a farm in Slater, Missouri and he was raised by his older family members. I had mentioned his mother, Julian. Uh, she was 20 when she had him, but she acted young and she was like really irresponsible. She was always hooking up with all these other guys and, and coming in and out of Steve's life when he, you know, dropping him off at family members' houses. That's not a great environment for a young person uh, to, to, to grow up in. Um, his early teens, his mother was back in the picture. I, you know, she, I think she would go to California and come back she must have met a man in California, I believe, and so she came back to Slater to pick up Steve and brought him to California. Not long after that, Steve McQueen ended up in uh, Boys Republic, and that was in February 1945. Now, the Boys Republic is—it's uh, it, still around. They have a Steve McQueen charity car show every year, but it was a private school for troubled youth. And so he went there, he was there for a couple of years, and it had a profound impact on him. It, I think it, it really changed him and gave him some structure in his life. Once he was out of the Boys Republic, he became a merchant marine and then a U.S. marine, and eventually he landed in New York City, where he became interested in acting 
and started attending acting school there. It was a, a girl he was seeing. She was into acting and taking acting lessons and encouraged him to get into it as well. And he was able to go to the neighborhood uh, playhouse, school, the theater, uh, using the GI Bill to pay for that. And he was also eventually a part of the actor's studio. So like many actors of his time in, in that Coming up in the in the fifties, McQueen started on the stage, and then he eventually moved into television, and then film. McQueen's first top billing uh, film appearance was in the nineteen fifty eight uh, sci fi horror film called The Blob. Yeah. So that came out in fifty eight. Blob came out in fifty eight, and then just ten years later, ten years in nineteen sixty eight. Steve McQueen was the number one Hollywood actor. It took him 10 years to get to the top. He had drive, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about that later, but he had this drive and desire to get to the top. So in 10 years, after films like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, The Sand Pebbles, Thomas Crown Affair, and then Bullet, he was on the mountaintop in Hollywood, which is a really impressive feat, almost like The Doors, really, if you think about you think about how quickly the doors just blew up and they were just putting out the best albums and the best songs in such a short period of time. It's almost like it's, I, I can compare it to that. Yeah. You know, having big, big success in a short period of time. I think when people think of McQueen, they also think about he had, he had a major interest in racing cars and riding motorcycles. And so he did that at a really high level. He also enjoyed the outdoors. He was, uh, he was into hunting and fishing. And he really liked spending time with his uh, with his children, Terry and Chad. Uh, he died of mesothelioma. Is that right? Yeah, which is a, which is a cancer that's associated with uh, asbestos uh, exposure, which he was exposed to while in the military. So he he had this cancer, and uh, he went down to Mexico to get this uh, this treatment, this experimental treatment. And as they were re- trying to remove this, the big, these giant cysts, um, he eventually died of a heart attack. But it was the the cancer that led to that. So it kind of in a brief nutshell, that is the kind of whom Steve McQueen was. But I mean, there's so like a zillion other things you could, you know, if this was like a, a three year long podcast, like I've been doing. I could- yeah. <laughs> That's another thing though, is the way you lock down on other things and the way you're able to, I guess, lock down on topics. And that's something we plan to do here. And Steve McQueen really had a longer career than the doors, I would say, but you know, that's one thing, though, is that Steve McQueen has a good body of work to pull from, has a wide range mm-hmm. of work to pull from, from yeah. the sci-fi of the blob. And one of the most interesting things, I think it was one of your early episodes where you actually talked about how he he tried, I think it was a talking about the blob and how he tries, I don't know if he intentionally tries to steal every scene, but just his, the way he acts, like even when he doesn't have dialogue, the mm-hmm. intricacies of his performance, I thought that was so interesting. It reminded me a lot of Jim and the way that Jim tries to, you know, sort of soak up that spotlight, even when he's not the, even during solos, say Ray, Ray Manzarek's doing a, a <laughs> organ solo, he's going to go over there, you know, he's going to mess with him or do something. He's going to go by the organ. He's going to go, when Robbie Krieger, something that got him in trouble in Miami, <laughs> yeah. whenever Robbie yeah. Krieger is playing this solo, he gets down on his hands and knees and watches him. That's all another story. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, you know this, um, you know, one of Jim's, idols or was uh was frank sinatra one of his favorite singers was frank sinatra and there was a time where uh frank sinatra wanted steve mcqueen 
to be a part of the Rat Pack. Now, I, you know, yeah. Steve could not carry a tune in a bucket, but Sinatra saw something in McQueen. This would have been around 58 when they were in uh, Never So Few together, and he was trying to convince Steve, like, you know. And so Steve advised or, or looked for kind of guidance from a Hollywood gossip columnist that he was friends with, Hedda Hopper. And Hedda Hopper said, you know, Steve, if you if you link up and you become part of the Rat Pack with Frank Sinatra, you're just going to be a Rat Pack guy. But if you do your own thing, you can you can be your own man and you could really carve your own path. And that's what, yeah. what Steve chose. And, and, and I know another one of Jim Morrison's favorite singers is Elvis Presley. Steve McQueen once stole Elvis Presley's girlfriend, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. So, let, you know, we talked about, if I'd look at my notes sometimes, Marshall Terrell, I have it written down here and just forgot it to look at my notes. I've heard you talk about Marshall. I've heard him come on the show and talk about the controlled chaos that McQueen seemed to revel in. Um, are there any stories that show this side of McQueen uh, that you remember? Oh, my gosh. There's so many. I think this is the thing. It didn't start when Steve McQueen was in movies. It started really, really early on. I'd mentioned like many of the actors of the 1950s who came up in New York. New York was kind of like the the epicenter of all this, all the action before everything was moved out to Hollywood. And they had all these great schools for for young actors to go and learn. And then what they do is they would get into uh, the stage, stage performances, plays, and that sort of stuff. Uh, McQueen, after he graduated from the Neighborhood Playhouse, he joined this they kind of this group, this acting, they, they kind of all rehearsed together and they would practice and work out material together. And this was way before McQueen was on a TV show. He maybe had a small part in a, in a show or a commercial or something. You know, he'd, he'd show up at these rehearsals with no shirt on. Right. And, he, you know, and, and kind of upset people like, what are you doing? No shirt on practicing your lines. And he ended up hooking up with all the, all the young actresses. He would, he would, you know, sleep with all the girls there, and then he would, which is fine, they're all willing and, and yeah. uh, of legal age, but then he would talk about them in front of the whole group of people. And while the girls were there, he would say, oh, I slept with so-and-so, and he would go into details about it. And, and it would just cause all this chaos. So, I mean, that kind of stuff was happening, you know, early on before he was even a movie star. He was trying to create this, this chaos, and I think he got a, a thrill out of it. It's almost as if uh, you know, since he was the one creating and controlling the chaos, he he really enjoyed that. And I think putting everyone on skates or putting everyone on edge and throwing them off their game was beneficial to him. Uh, there's a lot of power when you are the one controlling something like that. So he started doing that before he was even a TV star, a movie star. And that continued with his first star billing role, which I just mentioned the blob and they were filming that in the late summer of 1957 uh, just outside of philadelphia and he was a complete nuisance i mean so this is his first star billing role this is his big shot and he was just a complete nuisance he would um it was uh the group of people who were putting t the movie together the blob were a religious group and they were basically making the blob so they could make money to make their religious films. So they make this commercial release, make a bunch of money, and then they can keep making their religious films. So they were all religious and they would pray, you know, several times a day and they would end every single prayer with, 
and save us from Steve McQueen. That's how big of a nuisance he was on the set of The Blob. The stuff he did on that set was was completely unacceptable. He was always like lighting firecrackers and throwing them at people, or he would drive his car way, way, way too fast on set, ripping around down the back roads. He was scaring everyone. He borrowed the director's brand new car. He borrowed Shorty Yeaworth's brand new car, first and only new car this guy had ever owned, for the weekend to go to New York City. And when he brought it back, the car had a huge dent in the roof. And McQueen didn't even address it. He was just like, here's your car back. Didn't didn't apologize. Uh, He also insisted that his dog Thor be on set with him which was a nuisance because his dog wasn't trained at all. Like he wasn't, he was just basically just like a wild dog. So it would, it would make a mess wherever it wanted to, or it would bark incessantly, interrupting takes. And this other thing Steve would do is he would put these empty cans, maybe soda cans or food cans on top of Thor's head, and you'd shoot them off with a rifle. Not a, not a BB gun, but an actual rifle. So that that's like an early on thing, and and I and I tell that to set the kind of let people know like no this this wasn't behavior of a of a movie star, this was behavior of someone who was just starting. Like this is the way he acted. I think eventually in the seventies he stopped with the chaos, but there's always seemed to be something going on with him to upset the people he was working with. But what one thing that the studio started. Really taking notice, obviously, because you have everyone on in your production complaining about this guy's actions and, and, and what he was doing. So they started giving Steve McQueen toys to play with on set. So during, for example, the production of Hell is for Heroes, the studio, the studio gave him a couple of cars to drive around in because he's you know, really big into cars and bikes. So when he had downtime, he'd rip around in these cars. But what he did is he started smashing them up and crashing them and he just wasn't taking care of them. And eventually they said, okay, listen, next time you smash up one of these cars, it's coming out of your pay. Like it's going to come out of what we said you were going to get for this movie. So, you know, he stopped, he stopped crashing them. But, uh, and also on the set of Nevada Smith, they got him a boat so he could cruise around on this, this speed boat just to keep him out of people's hair. So he wasn't causing chaos. It, it sounds so childish. Like he was a man child that needed to be entertained or he was going to be a nuisance, but that was that was the case with him, and that sounds a lot like Jim Morrison. There's no line for them, like there's no line where, you know, this is the line of acceptable and unacceptable behavior. If I go beyond that, this is considered, you know, unacceptable. Jim, I mean, I could go on for stories similar, uh, you know, hanging from windowsills or, or just yeah. doing weird stuff like I, that. Yeah, but what are they going to do? I mean, Steve McQueen was the star. He knew he, he knew he was the star. What are you going to do? You going to fire me? I mean, there was times where. I, when he knew it was getting serious, like, you're going to get axed from this picture, Steve McQueen knew that that was the worst thing that could possibly happen, to to be kicked off a picture. That would be terrible for his reputation, terrible for him as a movie star, especially when he was on the come up, when he was still hungry, when he was still trying to get to the mountaintop. But I think he knew. I think he knew that if he got in trouble, he could charm his way out of it. But he was a nuisance, man. He was like picking fights with directors. He was he, <laughs> the sleeping with with the cast didn't end then, and we're gonna talk about that soon, I'm sure. But he, you know, sleeping with all these women. He was. It was just. It. He would all. He, another thing too that he would do. He's and this is kind of a good thing actually, is he would 
he would request all this extra stuff, extra razors, extra deodorant, because he would take all that and he would give it back, donate yes, to yeah. the, the Boys Republic, which he attended when he was in his early teens, right, back in Chino, California. So he would make these donations, and, and there was a story where he was filming, I believe it was the Cincinnati Kid, which is a Depression-era film, and he requested, <laughs> he requested 50 pairs of Levi's. 50 pairs of Levi's. That's what he requested. And when they asked him about it, they confronted him. They said, Steve, 50 pairs. You don't even wear Levi's in this movie. This is a period piece. He goes, yeah, but I wear them to and from the set. <laughs> so he had 50 <laughs> pairs of Levi's, which I'm sure they ended up at the Boys Republic. But I just had to, to laugh at that. I, you know, I think he just took full advantage of being a movie star. Like, uh, I, I'm going to request it. Because they're going to give it to me because I'm Steve McQueen. Jim Morrison had a really good relationship with Bill Graham for the most part, who was a big promoter. Not Bill, mm -hmm. not not the, I'm sure. I, anytime you're in the South and you say Bill Graham, they think you're talking about Billy Graham, the evangelist. The This is the Fillmore promoter who pr promoted the shows Fillmore West, Fillmore East. And Jim would do just the craziest things on stage. One, including, you know, grabbing the cord of his microphone and slinging it above his head like a lasso and... Uh, yeah. I believe that when one instance, Bill Graham saw this, was in the audience, wanted to stop it. And of course, Jim hits him in the head by accident. And, <laughs> you know, you can't really, of course, Jim's going to come back and do more shows. So, you know, you're not, it's Jim. So I guess Bill Graham understood. But when Jim came back to the, yeah. for the second set of shows, he brought him a special painted like psychedelic helmet for him to wear. And they sort of had like a laugh over it. But there's just, you know, no line and no rhyme or reason for the activity, just the controlled chaos and something, you know, getting into that you talked about was his relationship with women. And something I wanted to mm -hmm. talk about right now was how would you, how would you personally describe Steve McQueen's relationship with women? I mean, like most relationships in McQueen's life, his relationship with women could be complicated or complex or confusing. I mean, he was, he was married three times. He constantly had extramarital affairs. He slept with his female co-stars uh, when they were willing he would drive down, he would basically drive down the Sunset Strip, and if he saw an attractive woman walking, he'd say, hey, you know who I am? Okay. You know what I want to do? Okay, jump in. And they would go to, they'd just go have sex somewhere. So he took full advantage of being a famous uh, person and the benefits that came along with that. So there's that version of Steve McQueen. But then there was also the Steve McQueen who would try, you know, to be a mentor uh, or or a big brother figure to, to some women, like Suzanne Plachette in Nevada Smith. She had mentioned how awkward the kissing scenes were between them because he had always been that big brother mentor. And, I mean, she was an attractive woman. <laughs> he, she's the kind of woman that Steve McQueen would probably try to sleep with, but he didn't, he didn't, that wasn't the deal with her. Like, he was like, I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to be your big brother. I'm going to help you out as much as I can. And then there's another example of Lee Purcell, who was, Another beautiful uh, young actress who he, he, it was the only actress he officially mentored that he had that type of relationship with, Lee Purcell. Uh, and he was like a father figure to her. She was co starred in Adam at 6 a.m. Uh, with Michael Douglas, which is, was uh, Steve McQueen's production company, Solar Productions. That was one of the films that they had released. We'll talk about Adam at 6 a.m. later on. But yeah, he would. So it, it, it was just weird. Like some women, it was like, I'm gonna, he's just going to sleep with these women. And then other women, he was, 
you know, but he didn't have a relationship with his mother. I think we, you know, kind of do this like Freudian analysis or whatever, or some type of psychological analysis with this guy, is that he didn't have a relationship with his mother. He saw his mother as a, as a, you know, in and out of his life. She was always bringing these strange guys into his life. She was having these relationships. I mean, there's this popular rumor on the internet that his, uh, his mother was a sex worker, which I, I don't believe to be true, but I mean, you know, he didn't have a strong relationship with his mother. And I think that impacted uh, his, his relationships and how he viewed women. But, you know, when he was married to Neil, his first wife, he would go out and sleep with all these women and he'd come home and tell his wife about it. He had this like guilty conscience. And I think, you know, I think that's not for every woman. No, not very many women could be in that type of marriage or that type of relationship. But I think she understood kind of the trauma and and kind of the issues that he had and I think she knew that he truly loved her, but he would he would screw around on her. He would, you know, and, but he would be discreet and he wouldn't wave it in front of her face. I mean, later on he would, but, you know, in the early days, he, he kept it very discreet. And he, I think he would tell her as a way of kind of just cleansing his soul somewhat. You know, it's interesting. There's a there's a magazine dedicated to Doors called the Doors Collector magazine. I've, I've been in talks, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully going to interview the guy who... Uh, published that he's Carrie Humphreys. He's a really real cool guy to talk to, but they did. Uh, this has been years ago. They some lithographs or some I guess drawings that were turned into lithographs of Jim of, of that Jim Morrison did when he was fourteen or fifteen came up, and there's a whole notebook filled with them. And they had a the magazine had a child psychologist sort of analyze them, gave <laughs> gave them very nondescript details of of they because they didn't want to know as Jim Morrison, so they gave him the details like, hey, here's your you're John Doe, you know, this age, uh, military family moves around, basically gave us the basic info. And, and from the perspective of the person analyzing it, it was like, well, these drawings show a a complete disrespect for women. All the women are very grotesque that are drawn here. Um, and Jim, I think had a strained relationship with his mother as well. And there, I I don't want to get into some of the conspiracies, I don't know, or, or some of the theories or some of the things I've read about possible sexual abuse as a kid with Jim. I, I want to wait till I have researched that further to, yeah, you know, do a podcast on it. But there has been the, the rumor that that might have happened with his father and or, or some other family member. Uh, that then I think that came out during the Miami trial. But I have to research that. I'm not saying that's for certain. Um, I got well, I mean, you're talking about a guy who told the media that his parents were dead. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> anytime you do interviews, right? So a strange, strange relationship with his parents. Yeah. And in the end, the whole Oedipal section of the end, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know about it. So that he sort of had the section of that in the end where, and I think his, yeah. his mother came to a Washington DC show and he sort of gave them the runaround backstage. They were looking for him and he said, yeah, just tell him I'm not here. And she, he saw her in the audience, and he was doing the Oedipal section. Father, I want to kill you. Mother, I want to, you know. Yeah, and he yeah, looked yeah. her in the eyes and yelled that. Supposedly, you know, rumor has it when she was there, and that was the last time they ever saw him in person before he died. And he, for whatever reason, he did hold a grudge against his mom, I believe. Yeah. So if, if that was abuse from his dad, either physical or other, I don't know. But it seemed to carry over in his, in his relationships as well. He had a longtime girlfriend, Pamela Corson, and mm-hmm. he, you know, very – open relationship, I guess, if, if that is the correct, I guess, closest definition to what they had. Um, yeah, but he, but he would, you know, Grace Slicks, you know, he slept around with Grace Slicks, supposedly with Janis Joplin. Then later on, he hated her, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> didn't he hate Janis Joplin? Well, he, I think he, he was very intrigued by her. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. She was a, um, strong willed person. Mm-hmm. Do believe they slept together, but later on at a party, he, 
they were sitting together and he stuck his head in her lap or something. And, and she, that she was really embarrassed, took a Jack Daniels bottle, smashed it over his head. I, th- <laughs> I think, I think with her, it was all about the, he thought, man. And then I think supposedly after that, he said, man, what a woman, you know, one, one, one late night of heavy drinking at Barney's beanery, I'm sure probably led them to the same, uh, yeah. Hotel room, not too far from Barney's beanery there. Al Cienega. <laughs> Yes, yes, but they had a, you know, he had a very complex relationship with women as well. I mean, I think money and fame does that to someone. I think if you're, I mean, like, come on, Steve McQueen, good looking man, Jim Morrison, good looking man. Uh, you got all the fame in the world and you have thousands of women who want to be with you. Recipe for disaster if you have that unresolved trauma. Yeah, it's, it's, you see women more as a resource for, yeah, they get, they, they get objectified for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so that, that's another definitely, uh, I guess, connection between them two, which it leads me to my next story that I remember listening to on your podcast, that McQueen, while filming The Magnificent Seven, offered Monopoly money at a Mexican whorehouse and <laughs> jumped from a second-story balcony to escape. I think that was a story told in Robert Vaughn's uh, 2008 autobiography, A Fortunate Life. Uh, so, yeah, they were down, in, down filming uh, The Magnificent Seven. They went to a brothel one night and... They come in and, hey, how many girls you want? And they said, seven. We're the Magnificent Seven. We're filming the Magnificent Seven. We want seven women. So they had seven women and the drinks were flowing and probably the weed was burning and, you know, stoned off their, drunk and stoned off their asses. And they ordered up all this women, all these women. And when it was time to pay, I guess they had no money, which was common. McQueen never carried money. He never had a wallet with him. He never paid for anything. He was frugal. He expected other people to pay for him. This was like a really common thing uh, with Steve McQueen. So when it was time to pay, they, they had, I guess, this Monopoly money or some, something of the like, and they kind of just threw it at them and they <laughs> threw it at him and then jumped off the balcony and, and took a run for it. But uh, just kind of like a wild a wild scene uh, down in Mexico. But But not at all surprising. I mean... Uh, again, this plays into, you know, I'm a movie star. I mean, at that time, Vaughn would have been a bigger star than McQueen. McQueen was just starting out. That was, Yeah, it would be February 59 they filmed, started filming The uh, the Magnificent Seven. You, you kind of feel invincible, I think, sometimes when you're famous. You can do kind of whatever you want. Oh, yeah, but yeah that, that's a funny story. I mean, there's all sorts of wild stories like that with those guys, right? You know? Yeah, even the lead up to that's funny. Like, he quote-unquote crashed his car because he couldn't get out of his uh, contract to go I guess fence. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I can tell that story if you want, for sure. I mean, he, uh, that was, that was an incident that happened in, uh, Hartford, Connecticut. And I think maybe something that might be just seems so foreign to younger listeners is that when a TV star, a, a up and coming TV star was on a show, uh, they would have to do like promotional appearances for the show. So Steve McQueen was going to like county fairs and doing promotional appearances for his Western TV show, Wanted Dead or Alive, which started in 58 and ran for three seasons. So he was locked into this contract with Dick Powell, who owned a production company called Four Star Productions, and he was locked into this contract to film Wanted Dead or Alive, but he had an opportunity uh, to work with, with John Sturges, who was the director of the aforementioned Never So Few with Frank Sinatra, and, and Sturges really really liked him and said, Hey, I want you in the Magnificent Seven. But there was there was a conflict, scheduling conflict with T, um, McQueen's TV show, Wanted Dead or Alive. So Steve talked to his agent, Hilly Elkins, and said, man, I really like, he, he saw what this movie could do for him. And it, I think it was 
uh, payday on that was 65000 in, in uh, 1959, so $65,000 for this role in uh, The Magnificent Seven. Steve's like, I really want to do this film. It's a good payday. And it's also going to put me at, on the big screen. It's going to put me in the movies in a, in a more prominent role than his previous films. And so Hilly Elkin said, have an accident, meaning, you know, do something so you, you can take some time off for filming wanted dead or alive, and then you can go down to Mexico and film The Magnificent Seven. So Steve McQueen was on one of these promotional, uh, personal promotional appearances, appearances in Hartford, Connecticut, and he had his rented Cadillac, and he ran it in to the side. Like, I don't think Hilly Elkins thought he was actually going to do this, but he ran it into this brick wall, the side of a uh, Bank of Boston location, and uh, I guess he, like, narrowly missed a police officer and he smashed into this wall and it was all in the news it was all in the newspapers and when McQueen, when McQueen came back to Hollywood he had the neck brace on and everything he was like really playing it up and he was he was trying to get out of uh filming Want It Dead or Alive so he could do uh, Magnificent Seven I mean they, they, they didn't buy it Dick Powell and those guys didn't buy it right they were like if you can't film the show you can't film a movie <laughs> yeah. but it, they they let him they let him. And it was funny because they said, uh, hey, you know, give us permission to go down to Mexico and film The Magnificent Seven. And then I also, we also want uh, our pay doubled. <laughs> McQueen wants his pay doubled to come back on uh, Wanted Dead or Alive. So yeah, that's 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 how he got into that movie. And I, I believe you, I remember also you talking about how, yeah, I'm going to be at home resting so nobody come by, yeah. not a soul yeah. come by. Yeah, he's down, he's down in Mexico at, uh, at a brothel. <laughs> Filming a movie in between. You know, one of the interesting things about McQueen's career is that uh, as successful as he was, he did pass up on the highest grossing film of 1969, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a film released in New York five weeks and a day after the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival, Mm -hmm. which is the festival that also the Doors, you know, they passed up on. Um, Jim was going through some stuff with the Miami trial that had happened in March. They were offered to play. And ultimately, you know, whatever decision, I think they don't like outdoor venues, probably stuff with Jim. They didn't, they ended up opting not to play, play that. And if you look at a, there's a Chris Malampy that does a podcast called the hit parade. And he talks about mm-hmm. like one of the Woodstock episode. I'd recommend people going to watch if they're interested in anything, any music from this time talks about the, the, just how this Woodstock movie ended up being hit makers, you know, making hit makers out of some of these people and how like people like Janis Joplin who refused to be in the movie. She didn't like her set lost on a lot of record sales because of it. But that yeah. obviously Woodstock's the biggest thing that happened in 69 in the music world. And, um, which Cassidy and Sundance, Sundance kid was the biggest thing that happened in 69 in the, in the cinematography world. So what played into his decision, uh, McQueen's decision not to take the role? I want to say this when I do speeding bullet, the life and films of Steve McQueen podcast, I don't swear. I'm going to use a swear word. You can bleep it out if you want. All right, go ahead. But I, this is like the ultimate, I don't give a fuck moment for steve mcqueen and this is one of the reasons why i love steve mcqueen it's like he doesn't care he didn't give a shit. you can believe those two cuss words <laughs> please do but steve mcqueen was a movie star and he wasn't going to be outshined or he was not going to share the spotlight or any profits with anyone else especially during that time in his career right 69 yeah. that would have been right after bullet Steve McQueen was on the mountaintop. He was Teflon. He was untouchable. He was the man. He was especially not going to share the screen with Paul Newman. 
And so Steve McQueen wouldn't commit to the picture unless he received top billing. He was the hottest actor. He's number one. He wanted top billing. So what that means is his number, sorry, what that means is his name is at the very top of the movie poster. It's the first actor's name mentioned when they talk about the film. He was, that's top billing. So he was talking, he was trying to negotiate if he could get top billing for this film. And, you know, I don't think Paul Newman's going to go for that. He's been around longer. He's put in more time. He's done more movies. Paul Newman's going to want top billing. And so they came up with this idea, which is really common nowadays, called equal billing. So what that means is that the first name to appear on the poster would be on the left-hand side. And then the other name on the right-hand side would be a little higher on the poster. So do you want your name first or do you want your name higher? So they called that equal billing. And this is something they came up with for this movie. It's super common now. You can, you can see it. Uh, and McQueen was like humming and hawing about that. And then he came back and said, you know what? Let's flip a coin. Let's flip a coin to see who gets top billing. Forget this equal billing. Let's flip a coin to see who gets top billing. And we're going to leave it up to the gods to decide, which I think Steve McQueen knew Paul Newman would never go for. And so that's why he said, I'm going to flip the coin or I'm not doing it. So they said, obviously said, no, we're not going to do that. It's kind of ridiculous. You know, McQueen didn't want to share the spotlight, but also he didn't want to people to compare the, the two of them. And now I know they were, they were in the Towering Inferno together several years later. And there was issues with that as well. But I think McQueen didn't want to be compared. He didn't want to read reviews where they were comparing the two. And he, he didn't have to do it. McQueen didn't have to do it. He rejected more scripts, more great movies than any other actor. The things that came across his desk came, you know, hey, do you want to do this movie? He, there's just so many, man. Like, this movie's nothing for him. Yeah. To do this, he, he didn't lose any sleep over this. I, I, at least I wouldn't think so. I mean, at that point when he did Bullet, he had five hit movies in a row. Five box office smashes. Yeah. In a row. This, he was untouchable, man. Now, the movie he did after Bullet was a comedy called The Reavers, which many of your listeners probably have never heard of or never seen. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he, he didn't have to do this movie. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to share the screen with Paul Newman. By the way, Paul Newman was kind of like his rival, like his lifelong rival, or at least his, his acting life rival. And so he was definitely not, at this point, not going to do this movie. He had no intention. He was suggesting coin tosses and all this stuff. He was never going to do it. Yeah. But, which is sort of interesting to, that that Steve didn't, I guess, think much of it after, even after he saw the success of it, because I think the Doors had the opposite reaction to missing Woodstock because they saw it and they're like, you know, we really missed a chance here. And I don't know if Jim personally felt that way. I know the other members felt that way that, hey, we should have been there. John Densmore, the drummer, actually was there. You see him during, uh, I think, uh, Joe Cocker set. You can see him off to the side. But they missed it. So they they sort of thought they missed out so much so that they ended up being at the Isle of Wight Festival, which tried to be the British Woodstock, which, I mean, Isle of Wight Festival was pretty successful. It still had a lot of people there. But I don't think you could ever really live up to that Woodstock. I'm going to say something that I, I don't think the Doors, they weren't together at this time, but I'm going to say something that might be somewhat controversial. But right. the Monterey Pop Festival was... I think above and beyond Woodstock. I think it was just a way better, way better festival. 
uh, better venue, better weather. It was just a, a, the vibe. I think was way better, man. I, Monterey Pop, like that was a cool, cool festival. Obviously smaller in scope, but I don't know. What, Woodstock, I think, really, really gets overblown, and I think it's overrated. I I know people might laugh at me and make fun of me for saying that, but maybe some other people will say, you know what? You're right. I think I've read enough about it and read enough about yeah. that time period. But I just think Monterey was that was that was the festival. Yeah, I actually had Joshua Watt on my podcast. Did his Joshua Watt show, and mm-hmm. Monterey Pop is one of the things that it, that sort of helped influence him to sort of get into the. He 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 thought a lot of the Monterey Pop Festival, and personally, that was one of the first things I ever heard Jimi Hendrix do, and what got me into the music of the era. And I think yeah. the Monterey Pop Festival was a lot better because. I feel like, and and the Doors actually were a group at this time, but they were not as popular. They were playing at the London Fog. I think they, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, they'd already played the, together. yeah, they were playing the Whiskey Go Go, and they were, were mm. had just released their first album, and so it they released their first album in January of '67. Monterey Pop happens June '67, and so barely missed it there. But I definitely yeah. think uh, think it is a, a an amazing show, it's comparative. Yeah, and and I I've seen both documentaries. Oh, Pennebaker's documentary is amazing for Monterey. I I think I watched the uh, three-hour director cut of the Woodstock one. I don't know, man. The Monterey one was just so cool. I just... I like the bands better too. I think oh, yeah. at Monterey, psychedelia in '67 is just just hits a little different than it does in '69. In '69, especially when you get to Altamont and stuff, when, when the Altamont Festival happens, that's a dark day, man. Altamont's yeah. a dark day. And I think Woodstock is right around. That's right around the time of the Sharon Tate murder and stuff. So it, it sort of exactly. has that damper yeah, on it same too. Summer, yeah, it was uh, bad vibes for sure. Yeah, and one thing at the Olive Wife Festival was Jim had. Grew his hair out, grew a beard out after, mm-hmm. and and he he wore, you know, sometimes you even see him wearing this weird like conductor's jacket, but he wears baggier clothes. He, I think, he stops wearing the 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 leather pants and stuff, and and he sort of changes his persona. At the sixty nine, the July of sixty nine, the Doors play at the Aquarius Aquarius Theater, and you mm-hmm. see him with his maracas sitting on a stool, you know, very inanimate. He tried to change <laughs> yeah. his persona. Um, and mm-hmm. Billy Mo- Billy Moomy actually was in front row photographing that concert, which I thought's a little fun fact. But later on, McQueen seemingly wanted to do the same thing. He changes his persona. He grows out a beard, and he wanted to divert the attention away from himself. Can you tell me a bit more about that time period in his life? Yeah, yeah. So maybe about thirty five minutes ago, listeners will remember how uh, you know young McQueen was was hungry, do all these wild things, and get all attention and cause chaos and that sort of stuff. So, you know, young, young McQueen, the New York acting school educated, hungry actor, he would do anything to get to the top. He would step on necks. He would squash friendships for roles, whatever it took. And it worked out for him. He got to the top in 10 years and he never looked back. After he became the number one actor in the world, he shifted his focus to filmmaking he, you know, it wasn't that he was bored with acting, but he was became interested in other things. Uh, he had his production company, Solar Productions, and he had this vision for that company. It was forward thinking. It was progressive in terms of the films he wanted to make and how they were made. Uh, he wanted to do these really big things, but eventually, especially after Le Mans, and that's like a whole Le Mans was this racing film he made. Uh, which ended up being a mass of a production and left McQueen feeling abandoned by his close friends, his close industry friends and his business partners within the film industry. I think McQueen just got sick of it all. 
I think he just, he kind of, uh, he was jaded. He got sick of the fame and how he was treated. And he just wanted to get away from it all and live a normal life, do normal guy stuff. I actually have a quote, I think, that really uh, encapsulates this and captures this. It's it's from the Towering Inferno press kit. And that's a movie, a disaster film, Irwin Allen disaster film, that was released in 1974. And this is the quote. Actors have a certain peak lifespan. There's maybe 10 years when they can do no wrong. After that, their careers level off to a share of hits and misses. I don't consider acting a great achievement. I've really made very few films altogether. I only come back and make a movie when I need the bread. Pretty soon, I'm going to go up into the mountains and disappear. I want to sit and watch a guy change a tire on a motorbike or watch an Angus cow eat. I want to lead a slower and more leisurely life. There is little to say anymore. So at that time, he grew his hair long. He grew out a beard. Much like Jim, he changed up his clothing style. He he even changed up his rides, his vehicles, right? He used to have these flashy sports cars. Uh, He he converted to these old uh, GMC trucks, very common trucks. Believe it or not, he actually worked as a bartender. Steve McQueen quit acting and he acted, he worked at a casually part-time worked as a bartender at this place called, well, it's called the old place. That's the name of the bar. It was called the old place in Agora Hills on Mulholland drive. He spent most of his days drinking beer, eating, smoking pot and riding his motorcycle. So he just, he kind of just wanted to blend in. I think that quote from the towering Inferno press kit really kind of captures his thoughts and feelings at the time. That was in 1974. Yeah. And Steve even, um, I guess you could say called a shot, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, in an interview with uh, Bud Edkins, I believe he said, and I quote, look, I'm 40 years old now. My mom died when she was 50. My dad died when he was 50 and I'm going to die when I'm 50. That means I've got 10 more years to live it up. Personally, do you think uh, that he was just assuming the worst case scenario or do you think he actually knew or had some inkling of a feeling that that might be the case? No, I I mean, nobody knows when they're going to go, right? No one knows when their time is up, when their card's going to be pulled. No one knows that. It's just, it could happen today. It could happen, who knows? It could happen in 30, 40 years from now for for you or I. No one knows when this thing's going to happen. But you have to remember that people, especially people with a certain type of lifestyle, they didn't last long back then. It wasn't like it is now, actors or celebrities or people with lots of money. They have a team of people now, keeping them fit and healthy and on track and alive. McQueen never had any of that, right? It was it was Steve McQueen, and he lived a crazy life, like a really crazy life from the jump. He had a lot of lines on his face at a really early age, if your listeners can go online and look up a picture of Steve McQueen when he was he was 20, 21, 22 years old, he had a lot of lines on his face. So I think he was just taking all that into consideration. He smoked a lot. He smoked a lot of weed. Eventually, he did a lot of drugs, a lot of cocaine. And even though he was fit and healthy, besides that, his lifestyle was going to catch up to him. And I think if he was 40... He spent a lot of time looking at the mirror, he, he, looking at himself in the mirror. And I don't want to say a midlife crisis, but he was really kind of going, okay, what's going to happen next? Right? So he was uh, he born in 1930. 
So that would have been 1970 that this quote would be from if he was 40 years old. And so he had just had that run of five movies, five smash hit movies, Cincinnati Kid, uh, Nevada Smith, The Sand Pebbles, Thomas Crown Affair, and then Bullet. And then he did The Reavers, and then Lamar happened, and that was just a terrible experience for him. So I, who knows what he was kind of going through, that coupled with, like I said, this this turning 40 midlife midlife crisis experience. So, I, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't know what was going on there, but his, yeah, his parents, his parents died early, but it was rough times, man. I mean, I look, I, I did an episode on this, uh, Steve McQueen's first comedy called the honeymoon machine. And I looked at all the actors in that movie and almost all of them died before they were 50. And I talked to Marshall about this and he goes, people lived hard lives back then, man. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that was the case. It's not like he has, he doesn't have a, uh, someone who's taking care of his fitness. He doesn't have a chef, you know, he didn't have the stuff that the actors have nowadays. He was just going hard, man. Really, really hard. Yeah. And Jim always said that anytime anybody who'd go drinking with somebody after, uh, Jim and Janice or Jimi Hendrix and Janice Joplin passed away, he'd always say you're drinking with number three. And, uh, you know, Jimmy, so Jimmy died September 18th, 1970. Janice died in October of 1970. And uh, Jim Morrison died July 3rd of 1971. I'd be remiss to say, uh, not say this. Um, You know, you're talking about Jimi Hendrix. As a Canadian, Jimi Hendrix's grandmother lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And her house, I believe, is a historical site now. So I don't don't know if she was Canadian, but uh, she she did live in Vancouver, and and Jimi Hendrix would go up there in the summer, obviously before he was Jimi Hendrix. I believe he was Jimmy James before the uh, Arthur Lee influence on him. He would, yeah, he'd go up and spend summers in Vancouver with his grandma. Well, Kelsey, I'll tell you what, next time I'm in Vancouver and I'm going to visit Jimi Hendrix's grandmother's house, I'll stop by, we'll have a drink. I'll meet you there. I'll take the flight, our flight over from Calgary. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. We're going to have another part two talking just mostly about cars and other things and uh, mm-hmm, other yeah. Steve McQueen stuff that people might be interested in. But but for now, why don't you tell the people where they can find the podcast and anything else you have going on? Uh, speedingbullet.com, and that is uh, B-U-L-L-I-T-T, like the McQueen film, speedingbullet.com. You can, uh, all the episodes and some of my Steve McQueen research and my uh, YouTube video series, Collecting McQueen, where I look at Steve McQueen collectibles, that's all on my website and uh, Steve McQueen Pod on Twitter, and uh, you can connect with me on there. I, I tweet stuff about the podcast, but it's also a lot of Steve McQueen uh, history on there as well. I try to tweet a few times a day interesting stuff that you won't find anywhere else. So those are where you can find me, those two places, uh, the website and on Twitter. Thank you again to Kelsey Norman for the interview. You can find his podcast, Speeding Bullet, The Life and Films of Steve McQueen, anywhere you get podcasts, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Steve McQueen Pod. You can find this podcast on Twitter at The Doors Pod and on Facebook by searching Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. I also want to thank The Mild Equator for information used throughout the show. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in one week for a special bonus episode with some leftover material that I couldn't squeeze into the last Joshua White show. But until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. 
What? Oh.